We continue today in our sermon series on the life of Jacob. We will be in Genesis 27, story of Jacob stealing his brother Esau's birthright. It's on page 21 in your blue pew Bible. Genesis 27. I'm going to ask God to help us as we look at this passage. God, please help us. We'd rather not waste our time. Want to milk everything we can out of this passage, Lord. We could sit with it for months. And we have 30 minutes. Please, God, do things in us by your word that are most necessary for our sanctification and salvation. Build this church, Lord, as only you can for the glory of Jesus Christ, Jacob's great son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the Christmas season, which we're recently through, our church receives many Christmas cards. A lot of them are from you. It's a joy to get these. And they typically will will have a picture of a family on the front. And on the back side will be updates, kind of highlights, things that have happened in the past year. We've made a practice as a staff of actually hanging these up in our office kitchen on a bulletin board so we can be cheered by the wonderful people in our church through the year. Thank you for sending these cards. And while they're all different, because they're all from different families, I've noticed that they have a few things in common. The people on the front are always happy. There's only happy families here. They're smiling and they're together. And the updates on the back, they read like a highlight reel. I have yet to receive a card with a picture of people frowning or fighting or read the back of a card that's more like low lights. Here's everything we did wrong this year. The family's hanging on by a thread. Everything in the picture is fake. And you know, the the family that we meet in Genesis 27, God's family, they couldn't send a card. By the end of Genesis 27, the family of Isaac and Rebekah, their twin sons, Jacob and Esau, because of parental favoritism, sibling rivalry, and outright deceit and theft, they wouldn't even be able to come together for a fake picture because to be together was sure bloodshed. Here's what Rebecca says to her favorite son, Jacob, at the end of our passage, verse 43. And these are the last words she ever says to him. Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away. Then I will send And bring you from there. So at least one lesson from today's passage is that no family is perfect, not even God's. This is the chosen family. God has put his blessing on Isaac and Rebekah, unlike any other human beings on earth 
at this time. And they're a mess. So if you're new to going to churches and, and you feel like you walk into a church and it's a hallway of Christmas cards, I just want you to see God's family. You are welcome here if your family is a mess. The story of Jacob stealing his brother Esau's blessing, which is Genesis 27. It's one of the more familiar in the Bible. You, you may have heard it hundreds of times, or you may be hearing it today for the first time. But either way, I think there are fresh insights here, and I think they fall into two categories. And this is really one of what I want to do with us today. I, I want us to first look at this scene of a family coming apart and I want to see what it tells us about the pattern of human misbehavior. Moses, who's writing this to Israelites and through them writing to us, the church, he clearly means this at one level as a cautionary tale. So we want to look at the pattern of misbehavior because we're meant to actually feel it in us. That's why this goes into so much detail. But that's not the only message. That's kind of the surface of the text. There's a message operating underneath it that we see when we read it in light of God's broader work in Genesis in the Bible. And, it, and that is a message not so much about human misbehavior, but about the pattern of divine providence. So really, in the second half of the sermon, we're going to need to ask what it means when divine providence, the pattern of how God works, intersects with the pattern of how we behave. The sovereignty of God crashing in to the irresponsibility of a family. And we need to ask what we need to learn about that. So first, however, a pattern of human misbehavior, and then second, a pattern of divine providence. So, misbehavior. Jacob and Esau, the twin brothers, they're 40 years old when our passage starts. We know this because of how Genesis 26 ends um, with Esau's marriage to Canaanite women, and it tells us he's 40. Their father Isaac is old, and he's gone blind, and he thinks he's dying, and this simply forces the question onto the family of the paternal blessing. In that ancient culture, when a father would die, often from his deathbed, he would gather his family, his sons, and he would bless them. Now, the normal pattern that we see in Genesis and through the rest of the Old Testament is that a father should call all his sons, and though the eldest will get the lion's share of the blessing, and the blessing, by the way, is, is kind of like, I mean, Isaac says here he wants to bless his son with his soul, the blessing is, is as though the father could put his very vitality into his children and assure them God's presence, protection, and care in their lives. It's a huge deal. We scarcely understand it as modern people. But the tradition was the father would gather the sons, the eldest son would get the lion's share of the blessing, but there would be gifts and provisions made for all the family. So the first note that sounds out of tune in Genesis 27 is the fact that Isaac only calls one son and he seems prepared to give him everything. So picking up at verse one, 
When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and he said to him, my son, and he answered, here I am. He said, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, tent walls are thin, and Rebecca heard every word. So she calls in her favorite son, Jacob. She explains what's afoot. She hatches a plan. And the plan will exploit the father's blindness. So what they do is they get two goats so Rebecca can, can prepare a meal that will taste like Esau's food. They dress Jacob in Esau's clothes. At that time, an outfit, it wouldn't go to the laundromat. It would smell like Esau. It would smell like the fields. They put him in Esau's clothes. And then because Jacob is a man with smooth skin, they cover his exposed skin, his hands, maybe the back of his hands, his neck, with a young goat's skin, so that if his father were to happen to touch him, it would feel like Esau. And as the story unfolds, it is as masterfully told as it is suspenseful. In short, it works. Isaac is suspicious throughout, but in the end, after Jacob lies to him several times, he ends up blessing the boy, thinking he's Esau, giving him everything. And as soon as, as, soon as Jacob exit stage right, Esau enters stage left. Almost immediately, your, your, your breath is being taken away if you're reading this. The boys almost cross paths. And Esau learns that Jacob has stolen everything and he's done so irrevocably. There's no going back. The blessing is gone. Now, there are no heroes in this story and that's perhaps the strangest part when we first read it, everybody seems to be falling into sin as things come apart. And Moses has prepared us for the factions that have formed between parent and child. Earlier, back in Genesis 25, he let us know that this parental favoritism was developing. So when the boys grew up, this is Genesis 25, Esau was a skillful hunter a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And throughout Genesis 27, the two parents are associated with these different sons. And so, I, I, again, this is just another thing that's falling apart in this family parental favoritism. And it really is underneath what comes apart in this scene. But I wanna, I wanna pause at this point and just ask, what do these two factions tell us in terms of misbehavior? If we look at Isaac and Esau together, because they seem to act in a tandem, and we look at Rebecca and Jacob who act together, what might Moses be cautioning us against? So first, with Isaac and Esau, it seems that their misbehavior or their error is rooted in the fact that these are men who are ruled by their appetite 
rather than the word of God. So in Genesis 25, when, when Esau um, ends up selling his birthright to Jacob, he, he, the, the boys are teenagers at this point, Esau comes in. It's, it's a somewhat ridiculous scene. It's pathetic almost. Esau comes in and he's so hungry from hunting and Jacob, always calculating, leverages his hunger, makes a stew, and he says, you know, I'll give you this stew if you sell me your birthright. And he does. Now, the birthright and blessing are related like this. The birthright is like a deed to the blessing. You get the birthright because you're the eldest, and if you own that birthright, it means when the father finally dies, triggering the will being meted out, you get the blessing. So, so Esau looks past all of this because of his appetite. He prizes immediate gratification. But what's interesting is this seems like the same thing going on with Isaac. One of the dominating themes in our passage is this, this idea of Isaac wanting tasty food. Six times this phrase, tasty food or delicious food, is used. Eight times the phrase game or meat is used. And the only other place this phrase tasty food is used is in Proverbs. The only other place in the Bible in Proverbs and in, caution, in a cautionary way. The writer of Proverbs says, beware of the delicacies, the tasty food of the rich, for it is deceitful. And, and Esau, excuse me, Isaac is unashamed. Verse 4, prepare for me delicious food, such as I love. Now what I want you to see, in the verses where Jacob deceives his father, Moses very deftly focuses on all five senses of Isaac. We're told he's blind in verse one, so he can't see. Then Jacob comes in, and Moses draws us, our attention to the sense of touch. Verse 21, Isaac said to Jacob, please come near me that I may feel you, my son, to know whether or not you're really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him. Next is the sense of taste. Verse 24, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring the food to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then smell, verse 26, then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. Can you feel the tension? Isaac's just not sure. Come all the way over here and kiss me. Verse 27, so he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him. Sight, touch, taste, smell. They're all leading Isaac astray. Do you know there's one more sense? Do you know what it is? Hearing. And do you know this is the only sense of Isaac that operates correctly in this scene. And if he would have followed it, he would not have been deceived. Verse 22. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. Now this is not accidental. Moses is making a point subtly but powerfully. The people of God, for the people of God, Israelites, now Christians, 
The most important sense is not sight. It's not smell, touch, or taste. It's hearing. Do you know why that is? Because God determined to reveal himself, beginning with Abraham, not by erecting a statue or appearing in physical form. He reveals himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Israel through speaking, through his word. Hence the lodestar passage in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, Moses says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Not see or taste or touch. He says, hear, O Israel. Paul, too, in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Now, God doesn't deny the goodness of our other senses. He created them. But through Genesis especially, there is a consistent cautionary note against being led astray by the baser senses. Adam is led astray by eating. Noah, by drinking. Isaac, seeming a glutton in this passage, by tasting. Esau, too, by eating. And do you remember the scene with Eve and the serpent? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, when she saw that it was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and she ate. You see, Isaac knew the word of the Lord, the prophecy, the oracle that had been spoken over the boys in utero, that God had said, the older will serve the younger. He knew that, and he totally disregards it here. Esau would have known the word that God had spoken over his family through Abraham and Isaac, the incredible blessing that was meant to pass to him as the firstborn and through this blessing, and he totally ignores it in Genesis 25 when he despises his birthright. So here's the first lesson in terms of misbehavior that I think Moses is cautioning Israel and the church against. We must not give priority to the appetite of the body, of the eyes or the belly, over the voice of the Lord that speaks often subtly in our heart. I wonder if there's an area of your life where this battle is going on. The word of God is not so unclear, but your senses are in overload. It's what you want with your eyes, with your taste, with your touch your smell. And Moses is saying, be careful. Led by these, you may be led into deception. That's Isaac and Esau, the appetite over listening to the word. Let's turn to Rebecca and Jacob. Now, Rebecca and Jacob are certainly not gluttons. They don't have this impulsive way about them. In fact, they're far more in control, almost too in control. From the time we meet Rebecca in Genesis 24, she's a picture, a portrait of competence and action. And Jacob, he's born with a singular purpose, grasping his brother's heel. He is not ignorant to what the birthright and the blessing entail. He knows God's word, and he wants to organize all of his life around getting it. And we almost, we almost want to sympathize with these two, don't we? I mean, God had spoken that Jacob was supposed to be the one that, that got the blessing, and yet here Isaac and Esau seem to be going against God's word. I mean, we're, we're, we're kind of rooting for Rebekah. Do something. 
say something. Genesis is not upset with the fact that Rebekah and Jacob want the word of God to be obeyed. Where Genesis, where Moses finds fault, is with the way they go about trying to bend God's arm. They use deception, manipulation. They lie. Jacob lies to his father three times, to his face. Jacob blasphemies the Lord in one of the lies. Isaac says, well, how'd you get the food so fast? He says, the Lord your God provided it. And this feeling of deception is is the exact note that struck when Esau and Isaac realize what's happened. So, verse 35, Isaac said to Esau, your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. The sin here you you might call in, in some ways the sin of manipulation. Um, to manipulate something is kind of to take it in the hand and bend it how you want it. And so Rebecca knows that, that Jacob is to lead the family. And Esau has married Canaanite women. And it's, it's, they probably will lead him astray to worship false gods. And so she knows Jacob is the one. But, but rather than being forthright, rather than trusting God to bring about his purposes in his way, the two manipulate And with the sin of manipulation, two things really happen. One, we commit the sin of not trusting God. It's kind of like Abraham and Sarai when they take Hagar to have an heir. They manipulate things, but they're just trying to bring about God's will. And they think perhaps the ends justify the means. But it seems that Moses is saying this is never the case. When God calls you to something, You wait on him. He won't ask you to sin and hurt others in order to attain it. And what's really, really sad about this scene is that Rebecca and and Jacob win. I mean, it works. And in winning, they lose so much. Because when you win by lying to people, you wreck relationships. So Jacob has to flee. He can't be in the home anymore or his brother will kill him. Rebecca sends him away north to her brother, thinking it will just be for a while and she'll bring him back. She will never see him again. They will never speak again. She will never see Jacob's children. Esau and Jacob will be apart for 20 years without speaking. Jacob will have children. He will have 12 sons. And Those sons will deceive their father in a form of trickery to abuse his young son, Joseph. So what do we make of this? There's no resolution at the end of this story. Not yet anyway. At first, Moses seems to be saying to the people of God, be cautious as you take the land. Be cautious as you seek God's blessing lest you should let the desire of the eyes and the belly become your God, lest you should begin to see those around you and think God's blessing is tarrying. It's taking too long for Jesus to return. Therefore, we will take matters into our own hands. Do we ever manipulate in the name of God? 
Sure, we, you know, we started this church. This is hypothetical. We started this church and, you know, we weren't perfect with the finances and taxes in the first year, but we were moving fast. It was a church we were planting. We want people to know the Lord. Or yeah, we, we, we cut some corners in getting them a visa, but they're a foreign missionary. God needs them in the field. Friends, in a church, for the sake of bringing about God's blessings, we can lie. We can manipulate. We can cover up the truth. And in the end, I think this passage is saying that will end up potentially doing more harm than good. So wait on the Lord. But these patterns of misbehavior, cautionary notes, they're not the main message of the passage. They lie on the surface. I think Moses would have us look deeper and ask the question, now, how is it that this is the chosen family and this passage is all about God's blessing, which is essential for the story of salvation unfolding. And quite frankly, the blessing is passed on. Jacob did, does walk away to Haran with that blessing. But, but what are we to make of this? And that's where Moses wants us to ask, underneath the pattern of human misbehavior, can we see something of the pattern of divine providence? How does the power of God work amid our mess? I want to suggest three lessons about how the providence of God works in the middle of our misbehavior. Three lessons about that from this passage. I think these are really important. Lesson number one. Providence, this is God's power to bring about his plan. Providence does not minimize human responsibility. In the story of Jacob and Esau, the word of providence has already been sounded. Back in verse, excuse me, chapter 25, before they were born, the Lord says the older will serve the younger. This is what's going to happen. God has elected Jacob. He'll receive the blessing. So we might ask Moses, why don't you just stop, stop writing at this point? We know how the story is going to end. We certainly don't need all these details. We just know God's going to make it happen. But that's not at all what Moses does. After announcing the providential plan of God, he goes immediately to the mess of human will and the responsibility and consequences of actions. And I simply want to suggest we have to be able to hold together what you might call divine sovereignty, God's power, and human responsibility, like the Bible does. One commentator writing on this um, begins cynically, tongue-in-cheek. He says, well, providence has revealed itself and everything is settled. Jacob and Rebekah do what they cannot help doing. They perform God's will. As unfree vehicles of predestination, their actions are neither right nor wrong. For the tension between right and wrong, thus morality itself has been extinguished, taken away. But the author goes on. How different is our passage in reality? The characters we feel have not been degraded to puppets and are not a bit overshadowed by predestination. They act freely and on their own decision. They own their own decision. It is beyond dispute that they have their own responsibility. 
The fact that God's will is known already does not deprive the people of Genesis 25, 26, and 27 of their independence and their dignity. It does not relieve them of their responsibility to choose between good and evil. So here's the first lesson. The Bible has no problem holding in tension God's sovereign power and our responsibility as actors in this world. And when you read the Bible and you let it frame reality for you like we're supposed to, you simply have to hold these things in tension. You have to hold them together. Just as Paul does in Philippians, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. So God's choosing of Jacob in no way minimizes Jacob's role as a responsible actor. Divine providence, human responsibility live together, even if we can't philosophically always understand these things. The second lesson relates to this. The second lesson is this. So providence doesn't minimize human responsibility. Both these things are at work. But the second lesson is this. Providence, because it is more powerful, can bring good out of our bad. God nowhere approves of the misbehavior in this scene. Rather, he allows strict consequences to ensue. But through it, he still works out his good purposes. I mean, Jacob walks away going into exile, but he walks away with the blessing on his shoulders, exactly what God had planned. And he seems to be exiled in Paddan Haran, But while he's there, he has children. One of his sons is Judah. Jesus is a direct descendant of Judah. So the line of Jesus is furthered through this. One of his sons is Joseph. Joseph will be sold into slavery in Egypt. And through his ingenuity, Joseph will save Israel and Egyptians. And so you have to stand back and realize that despite all their failings, God somehow works through this mess to bring about good. And I think, I think this is just in Genesis 27, one thread in a much larger tapestry of what Moses wants the Israelites to know. And that tapestry, it could be well summarized by a verse at the very end of Genesis, Genesis 50 verse 20, where we read that that which people intended for evil, God has used for good. Friends, that's like the major message running through Genesis. And this is a thread in that story. And this is meant to comfort us. It means that for God's people, not only will he forgive us in our failings, but he can in some mysterious way pick up the broken shards of a life and use these to make something good. And this means that as the people of God, you simply, individually and corporately, you must always recognize that there is far more going on in any given such situation than you can see. Far more forces at work. Let me give you an analogy from the natural world. So right now, I'm exercising my will in at least three ways. I'm standing upright, I'm thinking, and I'm speaking, and I'm doing all that. 
But is that all that's going on? During this whole time, my heart has kept beating, my lungs have kept working, my brain has kept firing, things I really have no control over. And beyond that, I think I'm keeping myself standing, but it might be that gravity is keeping me grounded. And then below me, there's a tectonic plate floating on molten rock that stayed in place. The earth happens to be spinning on its axis at 1,000 miles per hour right now, orbiting the earth at 67,000 miles per hour, while the universe expands at a rate of 41.9 miles per second. So to speak about what's going on as I stand here and talk to you as though it's simple is, is just not to get the point. Friends, there's always far more going on than we realize. And this is true spiritually. It's true when you think about what's going on in nations in the world or in elections in the world or with the life of a church or the life of a family or the life of an individual. God in his providence is working out his plan. He says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come, says the Lord. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. And so somehow that great force is operative around everything going on when we make a mess of our lives and really do sin and really do things that God doesn't approve of. Providence does not minimize human responsibility, but the power of providence, God's divine hand, means that he can bring good even out of our bad. Finally, a, a, a last lesson to conclude with. Doesn't it bother you that Jacob steals this blessing? Doesn't it feel unjust? The man sins his way to the blessing of God. You could call this the ill-gotten blessing. Does that bother you? Do you know what I want to suggest? This is your only hope, an ill-gotten blessing. Because you see, if we have to perform our way to earn God's blessing, well then which one of the characters in this story do you think it should go to? How about which character in your life, in your family, in this church, is anybody really worthy of it? And so you need to understand that Jacob points forward to his great descendant, Jesus. This is how the blessing works. Jesus steps into this mess of a family himself. Jesus also is betrayed and deceived the way Isaac is. Isaac's betrayed with a kiss. He calls his son Jacob over. He kisses him. Jesus has a betrayer named Judas. He betrays him with a kiss. Jesus is cast out then by his people as the son with no blessing. He's cursed. Remember, Rebecca says to Jacob, don't worry. If it goes wrong, I'll take the curse. Jesus takes the curse because it is said in the crucifixion, cursed is he who hangs upon a tree. But you see, in doing all this, what he's actually doing is he's paying the consequences for everything wrong done in this scene, for Isaac, for Esau, for Jacob, for Rebecca, for you, for me. So that by bearing all the stuff we've done that makes us unworthy of God's gracious blessing, Jesus in grace can turn around and he can give it to us for free. Here's Paul in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, 
Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And notice this. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Friends, the tension in this scene is all about getting God's blessing. We all want it. The desire for us to know that our mom or dad give us their blessing is a small faint echo of the need to know that God's favor is upon our lives. And we fight and kick and scratch and claw to get it. We're terrified of missing it. But what the gospel tells us by looking at this text through Jesus is you can stop fighting. You can stop backbiting. You can stop lying. And you can drop to your knees and you can feel the hands of God on your forehead saying, you are blessed. So if God were to write all our Christmas cards next year, if he were to describe what happened to you in the previous year on the back of the card, I think he'd be really honest. But I think in light of eternity and in light of Christ, every sentence he'd write would end by how he is brilliantly turning it in to your blessing. Father, we thank you for the gift of Christ who was cursed on a cross so we might be blessed. And we learn, Lord, from this story of this family that though we are imperfect in grace, we can fall on our knees and cry out, please bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.